You are listening to the protagonist of the erotic. Produced by Extra Extra. Each episode is dedicated as an act of love to the libidinal ouvre of a living person. Desired object or location that can be visited in the present day. Discover what it means to define and shape sensuality, framed within the dynamic context of modern urban life. than the one between a writer and their desk. The location of laboured love, where words, dreams and fantasies flow from the tip of a pen or tap of a keyboard. Sitting down at his beloved desk, essayist Emmanuel Iduma contemplates the smooth wooden surface, his altar for creating stories. He remembers past kitchen tables, dusty library corners, and even as a child, working atop of a collapsed ironing board. From Charlotte Bronte's Mahogany Davenport to Chinghua Achebe's Modest Bureau, the desks of inspiring authors and poets are uncovered and, in between sentences, the rituals of writing arise. from my desk in Lagos and I miss it it's black with a sheen as brilliant as the glint the moon gives in the dark it's plywood a cordon for the hallowed area in my study I miss when I'll go to read before even switching on the desk lamp setting my elbows on its uncluttered surface feeling inwards for the direction of the day that is yet to dawn. I miss when I'll place my feet against it, reclining on the swivel chair I bought on the same day as it, 
in mind for an inanimate Kairos. Now I am away from the room in which I go to work daily, a room originally built as a bedroom, with a three-doored wardrobe the color of a Douglas fir. And when I picture the uninterrupted days I spent there, I see myself almost always walking out the arrangement of the objects I've gathered to accompany me on a mental journey. A pen holder, a pile of books, a phone charger, two phones, a stray highlighter, an apple keyboard, a mouse, a liter of open notebooks, a cradle for a phone, a binder, a mug full of coffee, and all the etc. that might be displaced or accumulate during the fever of typing words on screen. In all the houses I have lived in, and I remember this suddenly, I have never faced the window while sitting at my desk. I recall the earliest desk I could call mine while I still lived with my parents and shared a room with my brothers. And the ironing board in my uncle's house I used as a desk. And when I first moved to New York, a room so small it couldn't even hold a desk so that I wrote on the bed or sometimes stayed all night at the school library, finding a corner on the massive oak table. All those desks, and none faced the window. Each was set against the wall. Appealing workplaces are to be avoided, wrote Annie Dillard. One wants a room with no view, so imagination can meet memory in the dark. When I finished this study seven years ago, I pushed the long desk against a blank wall so I could not see from either window. But truth be told, I want the consolation when I stand from my desk mid-sentence searching for the next word to write. I want the consolation of a momentary distraction. Okay, Dalkova is a Isa. Là où je suis né, les tombes cachées des rebelles, des corps en centaines versés dans des fosses de vraies poubelles. Le cœur lassé des vieillards, ce n'est une éternelle haine transmettait sans peine aux adultes et aux gaillards. L'âme pourtant fragile des femmes, laissée par la lame de ces milieux de morts. Separate from the
My study in Lagos is on the second floor, in the terraced building I live in. So in search of the next word to write, I'll often make a 180 degree turn to consider the clutter of buildings, the rows of roofs that makes the sky a cramped surface behind me. My compound shares a fence with a church, and this church is often my immediate preoccupation when I sit with my back to the desk. One day, after months of considering it, I notice as I turn that a church is being taken apart. Some men are standing on its roof, unscrewing bolts. I spend half an hour taking photographs of the paraphernalia of worship soon to be discarded. The sedate glamour of these once precious items catches my eye. It's one kind of fellowship. I shouldn't be taking photographs, I think, but writing. I am like Annie Dillard, who's sitting on her desk makes a pen drawing of her window and the landscape it framed. I drew the window's aluminium frame and steel hardware, she wrote. I laid in the clouds and the far hilltop with its ruined foundation and wandering cows. I outlined the parking lot and its tall row of mercury vapor lights. I drew the cars and the graveled rooftop foreground. Soon, Dillard goes to a field she can see below her window to join a game of softball being played by little boys. This, by implication, is a distraction. So one day, she shuts the blinds and tapes her drawing to the closed blind. If I wanted a sense of the world, I could look at the stylized outline drawing, she said. And so we are back to the sense that the consolation of a distraction of the church or field below will not ultimately be productive. I'll have to treat my desk as the trampoline of the inner mural I am creating. An inner mural. It is when I sit at my desk waiting for inspiration to strike that I recall what has been told me of unrequited love. I tell no lie. When they kissed two who were once in love, he knew their lives would further tangle in uncertain twists, like halls of puffed smoke. They said the following to each other. This is like a dream. I'll never have you. I don't want to be dishonest with you. You seduced me, the way you held my hands, the way you wanted us to lock eyes. I'll always love you. I have no expectations. 
This is the first photograph we have taken. We have known each other for 12 years. Dearest, darling, isn't it fascinating? We aren't strangers to each other's bodies and we barely touched before today. I don't believe in secrets. Whatever happens, tonight I am happy. This is my report from the front desk of Desire. It's just a feeling of I am now looking up photographs of desks other writers are said to have worked from. The mahogany desk used by Charles Dickens with a raised sloping area in the middle. Another mahogany desk by Charlotte Bronte, equally sloping, and the anonymous buyer who bought it at an auction donated it back to Bronte's home, as if to render it the homage it deserved as an object that could know no other owner. And when I think of a 29-year-old Chinua Achebe, it is a photo of him sitting at a desk taken by Elliot Elisophon in 1959. The desk is small, even cloistered, and three books are visible. Two editions of his famous novel, Things Fall Apart, and a bulkier book which has been identified by scholars as the Oxford English Dictionary. He has clearly posed for the photo, or it is clear that a photo was taken to spotlight his work as an author. His first novel had just been published the previous year, a novel that is perhaps the most famous book of fiction written by an African. What interests me in the photo is how little the desk is, as small as Charlotte Bronte's. I think of the discomfort Achebe might have sometimes felt, getting on with his walk on a surface as narrow as it, especially if, like me, he liked the spread of books on a large table with enough space for more. In another photo in the series, he is bent over his little desk, appearing to write. A page of handwritten text is placed on the end of the table closest to the viewer. The photo seems as choreographed as the other one, but here, at least, we can note how Achebe's parsed lips show what he might seem like alone, straining to fill that page with words. Here at the Museum of Nigeria in Lagos, we are sitting with Chinua Achebe, uh, a man possessed of a startlingly original talent in writing. Chinua Achebe the Young has given the world two novels, Things Fall Apart, No Longer It Is, and all critics seem to agree that Chinua Achebe uh, combines a simplicity in technique 
and a, a very complex technical uh, talent indeed. But a desk can be used for other purposes beyond a clearing ground for words. It can be a place of other pleasures, other pursuits. Say, for instance, how I can tell of the kiss between Toby and Janet, the most famous couple in my secondary school, two years my senior in class. She sat on a desk and he stood with his back to the wall, and they were at it late in the afternoon in the full glare of a nosy passerby. Never again would I walk past that classroom without thinking of those two, her warmth on the desk. Now I turn to this desk I'm writing on, a desk I bought at a charity shop in Norwich. It is far smaller than the one in Lagos, one third of the wheat and half the length. I have used it for two weeks now, and I wonder at what point my comparisons will end. Of when, while writing in Norwich, I'll keep from thinking of Lagos as the city with a better desk. Most mornings in Lagos, at about 7.15 a.m., I go on a brisk walk. I turn south from a road linking the Lekki Ekbe Expressway and enter a wide pedestrian walkway where, after I get to a bus stop at a junction, I head back home. I am almost often in an interregnum as I walk. The moments between waking up, attending to the rituals that shake me awake, and getting on with my day. I am not grudgy, but it is early enough for me to feel I am still at anchor. The walk is my ferry, a portal to that day's sense of self. I am on that road on aggregate for 200 minutes each week, considering that I walk 40 minutes each day. The minutes become like keystrokes, units for measuring what might yet be written. I take note of what I see, or better to say my eyes rove of their own accord. I realize that what my senses recorded are, as it were, liminal hidden from me until I begin to turn a phrase in my mind, seeking to fix it in writing. Take for example, I see a man almost each time I am walking. He is dark, gaunt, and bears a face as blanched as it is placid, as though he has made peace with the extremity of his condition. He seems to pass the night on that walkway in Lekki, 
where he sometimes lies on a cardboard or stands half naked, facing a railing that breaches a stenchy ditch, his jumble of clothes in a polythene bag beside him. After I return home, I take a shower, eat breakfast, and depending on how long it takes me to attend to chores, I come to my desk at about 10.30 a.m. For a long while, it is difficult to temper the cacophony of the crowd of faces and gestures bubbling up in my subconscious from the walk. On the days I manage to find my way on the page, I write an average of 100 words an hour, and my staying power is shy of three hours. 300 words on the most promising day, small by small. Medium might be message, but medium is unsparing. When the going is good, I feel like I am descending. Oh no, that's the wrong image. While the hours accumulate, I do not feel I have taken leave of the world, and so it isn't decent, but immersion. My room takes on the character of a baptismal font. I find that in those long moments between a decent sentence and several attempts to write one, I am often looking at my computer keyboard, at the spacebar in particular. It is the longest key of all and can be touched from both ends at once. And its function is of a similar specificity as the only key that creates spaces, creates rhythm or cadence or pauses. It is the key that stands for the in-between. The liminality of a sentence converges on it. When the novelist Laszlo Krasnarukai was a young man, he moved from one little village to another in Hungary, living a secluded life. He had friends, but one at a time. With each friend, he maintained a relationship in which they spoke in lengthy monologues. One day or one night he spoke, and the next day or night the other would speak. He was asked in a 2018 Paris Review interview about his grand, vast sentences, and he referred to those dialogues. The dialogue was different each time because we wanted to say something very important to the other person. And if you want to say something very important, and if you want to convince your partner that this is very important, you don't need full stops or periods, but breaths and rhythm, rhythm and tempo and melody. The image of such a listener sitting in silence, awaiting his turn to speak, equating knowledge with rapt and sensuous attention, teaches me how to write with patience, how to aim my writing at a patient reader. But it is counterfactual to say I write in silence. My desk might be made for devotion, yet devotion, in the strict sense of the word, does not suggest the practice of stillness. Weeks after I bought the little desk in Norwich, I also bought a toy car, a Volkswagen Beetle. It had a trilling mechanism. If you dragged 
its back tires and left it free, it would speed ahead with surprising force. While I walked on the desk, in those early days of owning the little beetle, no hour passed when I didn't turn from my screen to set it in motion. I was often surprised by the alacrity of my joy. The desk became a highway, and I cruised without limit. There was a time I was interested in learning how to make a table. I went into a London bookstore and came out with a book on walking with wood by a Swedish author. I even located a used copy of N.S. Joyce's The Technique of Furniture Making. I also thought at the time I'll write a novel with a character who was a carpenter and especially if I didn't manage to learn how to make a table, I could justify the excess of attention I paid to the theory of woodwork. And I was thinking about Robinson Crusoe and thinking about Kate Briggs' book, This Little Earth, where she quotes Crusoe as follows. And now I began to apply myself to make such necessary things as I found I wanted, particularly a chair and a table. For without these, I was not able to enjoy the few comforts I had in the world. I could not write or eat or do several things with so much pleasure without the table. So I went to work. If I wanted a board, I had no other way but to cut down a tree set it on an edge before me and hew it flat on either side with my axe till I had brought it to be as thin as a plank and then daub it smooth with my adze. It is true, by this method, I could make but one board out of a whole tree, but this I had no remedy for but patience, any more than I had for the prodigious deal of time and labor which took me up to make a plank or board. For Briggs, here's the question to be asked from that passage. Is the table for Robinson Crusoe a necessary thing? The answer, she says, is yes. And why is it necessary? It is a proxemical object. We tend to gather around in proximity, configuring our bodies, our spaces, and our other objects in relation to them, she writes. Is the table a necessary thing? Will you do anything on its surface to change your life? 
and I remember what you once told me of the woman you're now engaged to be married to. She told you she had loved you since she was 14. How you felt about her was uncertain. There was something there, but it was an affection yet to crystallize, even now. One day, a week before you asked her to marry you, you arranged to meet her in an abandoned school. You were visiting her town, which of course she knew better than you did. So you went to the school where you had agreed to meet with her. The classroom she chose still had its rows of desks, even a scattering of words on the chalkboard. And there, suddenly, she moved you gently towards a desk, then drew closer. You shared a kiss, then more. How could I explain, you told me, of knowing in the brush of lips a warning against another kiss, and yet I kept at it. joining Extra Extra on this listening experience. It's been a pleasure to have welcomed you on a journey through this episode of The Protagonist of the Erotic. Please visit us at extraextramagazine.com where you can hear more about our auditory programme and discover further editorial content exploring the intertwinement of sensuality and the city. <laughs>